Six Flags wasn't supposed to be the first successful theme park after Disneyland. There were three false starts that helped pave the way, thanks to the smooth-talking huckster who was responsible for getting Walt Park built, right before he got fired. Welcome to America's Disneylands, showcasing the history of regional theme parks. I'm Barry Hill, and this is Episode 4, Duplicating Disneyland is Harder Than You Think. Six flags waving every proudly. Now it's showtime at the Crystal Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood Jr. is a singular definition of an enigma. Few Disney fans have ever heard the name. The ones who have have read anything from genius, showman, shuckster, to conman. The self-confident kid who got into college on a rope twirling scholarship was pure Texas and a born leader. His friends were known as the Bombers, and they remained loyal to the very end. Woody, as he was called, could talk anybody into anything could sell anything, had the chutzpah to will anything into existence if he wanted it, and his Texan drawl was so charming you'd never know what hit you. First meeting the Disney brothers as one of the team at Stanford Research Institute, his no-nonsense, easygoing, confident manner was so impressive he was quickly hired to oversee completion of Disneyland on a tight budget. That he did, against all odds. There is no way that Park was going to make it on time with the cash they had available. Previous attempts to lease space in the park to large companies had been unsuccessful, so they let Woody take a stab at it. Sponsorships are an iffy thing. How do you set a value on something that's so intangible? For example, say a company would operate a shop or restaurant on Main Street. They paid for all internal construction, equipment, and operations, on top of a sponsorship fee in hopes that it would pay off with future sales. Yet Woody talked a long list of companies into jumping on board. Swift's packing company was the first to sign on, but it seemed hopeless for a long while. Nobody could see far enough down the road to imagine how this might be different from the normal advertising experience. Swift's was the last gasp at making this whole thing work, and after the initial pitch, Woody and his sidekick were thrown out of the president's office. He sat in the lobby for several minutes before heading back up, striding into the office to retrieve his forgotten briefcase. Turns out, the guy had a few minutes to think about the concept, and he decided to sign on. Swift paid a lease of $110,000 per year to run their restaurant in the park, and this opened the gates for others to join in, including Upjohn Pharmacy, Richfield Oil, and the Santa Fe Railroad. Could anybody else have pulled this off? Uh, maybe P.T. Barnum, but at any rate, C.V. was instrumental in getting Disneyland opened, on time, and sort of on budget. Seven months later, he was gone. Two egos don't easily coexist, and Walt just couldn't take it anymore. And there have been plenty of talk about some of Woody's deals, things that might not show too well in the company's accounting statements. Roy Disney let him go in 1956, and C.V. promptly set up his own company, Marco Engineering. 
His objective? As the master planner and builder of Disneyland, he could bring the magic to anybody's home turf. He began hiring designers and engineers, including a few key individuals from Disney, such as Wade Rudebottom. But his most significant hire was straight from the movie industry, the highly successful art director, Randall Duell. More on him later, as his story eventually overshadows that of Woody in the realm of regional theme parks. You can see the six flags waving, ever traveling, as you pass the famous giant sky. C.V. started out strong, beginning work on four parks in the late 1950s. First up was Magic Mountain, outside Golden, Colorado. Originally envisioned as a Mother Goose Storyland-themed park, art directors Wade Rubottom and Dick Kelsey, another Disney studio artist, worked to reimagine some of the early ideas from the park's owners. In a pattern that would be revisited time and again, many attraction ideas were adapted from Disneyland, though scaled down in detail and cost. Visitors would enter under the railroad bridge, with steam trains leaving the station elevated majestically just off to the right. The period is the mid to late 18th century, and the guest has just entered a cavalry fort, complete with blockhouses, medicine shows, and hobo jungle, where one could eat beef stew served in tinware, such as what hobos would presumably have used. This area paid homage to how the cavalry made expansion possible into the West providing safe zones for settlers to build villages. And so on the other side of the fort lay Magic Mountain's version of Disneyland's Main Street. Magic Mountain Village, renamed Centennial City in 1959, was laid out with the same clever use of four large industrial structures hidden by period-authentic facades. Designed to resemble city blocks from Colorado in the 1880s, each housed multiple shops and attractions. Beyond that lay, well, not much of anything. The plans call for six themed lands, Cavalry Post and Stockade, Magic Mountain Village, Fairgrounds, River Ride, Magic of Industry, and Storybook Lane. Beyond Cavalry Post and the Village, here is how the park described upcoming attractions. At the edge of Magic Mountain Village, it is planned to have a fairgrounds, much the same as every western town had its own fairgrounds area, where families met for picnics and entertainment. In the Magic Mountain Fairgrounds, plans call for various types of amusement facilities, such as a mine ride and the creation of the earth ride. All such rides will have authenticity and educational concepts as their underlying theme. Included in the plans for Magic Mountain are areas for such things as a river ride that will tell the story of early-day fur trappers and the experiences they had on the Colorado River. A Magic of Industry exposition telling the story of a century of progress in the West. A storybook lane for the younger set. A full-scale, narrow-gauge railroad circling the entire park. And an authentic reproduction of the Cherryland horse-drawn streetcar that used to operate between Denver and Englewood. Surrounding everything was the Magic Mountain Railroad, an authentic narrow-gauge steam train. Conestoga wagons explored undeveloped lands. The river ride was to be the first knockoff of Disney's Jungle Cruise, with guided boat tours of the backwaters. 
Of course, you'd encounter all sorts of animated wildlife, get caught in the crossfire of battles between cowboys and Native Americans, and narrowly avert sinking when an old bridge collapses just shy of the boat. The Outer Space Land Ride concept was a simulated flying saucer experience, blasting off from Earth and making visitors feel as though they've journeyed far beyond the atmosphere. Creation of the Earth would tell the prehistoric story of the Rocky Mountain regions. Most of this never came to pass. The park struggled continuously to finance construction, and a senior executive skipped the state with the remaining company funds. It was so iffy, the park actually opened its gates in 1958 for visitors while construction was still ongoing. The train began operation in 1959 on weekends, essentially sightseeing a vast construction site. And the first full season of regular operation was 1960. This would also be the last. They managed to complete the stagecoaches, which were used for tours of the property, the train, an Indian village, Market Street, and Road Racer, which was a standard aero auto ride. Much of the river ride was excavated with concrete rocks, structures, and gags built on site and in the show building of the Creation Ride, which was used as a workshop, similar to how Disney used the Opera House in the early days. The park, what there was of it, sat idle for 11 years, when in 1971 it was reopened as Heritage Square Amusement Park. Other than the existing structures of Centennial City, this park had nothing to do with the original vision of a Disney-type experience. And, as of this recording, that park is also closed and the land is planned to be redeveloped. The very first theme park to be designed and built after Disneyland was finally gone. Is it lost history? Or just getting rid of a bunch of cheap industrial structures with fancy facades? It's all in the eye and heart of the beholder. Pleasure Island was announced at a Boston press conference on October 28, 1958. Marco's second theme park was underway at the same time the first one was struggling to find its footing. The original concept came from the publisher of Child Life magazine, Bill Hawks. Child Life World, full of storybook and fantasy, was transformed into the country's second theme park to be patterned after Disneyland, using the same design team of artists Woody had brought over from Disney and elsewhere. Many of the same themes and design ideas would be employed here as at Magic Mountain. 168 acres in Wakefield, Massachusetts, much of it swampland, was dredged, filled, and reshaped to feature Main Street, Clipper Cove, Western City, and Hood's Farm. Main Street was angled a bit toward the right just beyond the hub, with the farm located to the far right. As you turned and walked toward the end of Main Street, the waterfront and the park's iconic Hawks Point Lighthouse would come into view in a Disney-like cinematic reveal. Clipper Cove resembled a New England fishing village with various boats, docks, and Captain Snow's Chowder House, which was a corporate sponsor. Back to the left of the front hub were the Jenny Cars, which was an aero auto ride sponsored by the Jenny Oil Company, and the Western City section. Shoving off from the waterfront were two destinations for danger. 
The Moby Dick hunt was a play off the Jungle Cruise, this time with a narrated hunt for the great white whale that has terrorized the area. If the menacing cannibals didn't get you on the way past their island, the sound of the whale's blowhole surely signaled all was over. Soon the whale itself was in sight, rising out of the water, blowing to beat the band, then submerging again to reset for the next boat. If you survived, you could regain your land legs for a moment and then head over to the other dock. Bamboo-thatched pirate boats embarked from Clipper Cove for the perilous safari to Pirate Cove just beyond the western section. This popular attraction was in the outer harbor, beyond the causeway and railroad trestle. The island featured a treehouse, fort, shipwreck, and other fun, piratey kinds of things. The park featured two dark rides, Wreck of the Hesperus was located near the waterfront, clearly visible with the remains of a great sailing ship dominating the entrance. Well, or at least that's what the original concept art depicted. Reality being what it is, the actual entrance featured two tall masts planted at angles in the cement with various ropes and torn flags. Ride vehicles, shaped like small sailing vessels, set off across the sea, only to be sunk by a hurricane. Drifting along the undersea realms, you finally escaped after a warning by King Neptune himself. The old Chisholm Trail Ride, located in Western City, was a horseless carriage vehicle that took you into a western town, where you witness a live hanging and a gunfight while the piano player just blissfully plays away over in the corner. The narrow-gauge Pleasure Island and Western Railroad, which was later renamed Old Smoky Railroad, departed from Western City on a roundabout tour of the backcountry and outer harbor crossing over a trestle that separated it from the inner harbor. That's where Clipper Cove was located. The railroad locomotive and passenger coaches were leased from the Edaville Railroad in Massachusetts. Edaville had a popular Christmas season that used a lot of equipment, but during the slower summer seasons, a lot of this was sitting idle. So it was trucked back and forth to Pleasure Island each year. Live entertainment was a major draw for the park, with much of it consisting of streetmosphere actors roaming about the grounds. The Diamond Little Saloon show was the big deal, and later, the Show Ball hosted a variety of big-name entertainers. Along with his designers who were working on Magic Mountain, Woody called in an old friend from Texas who had developed Disneyland's new employee training program. Van Arsdale Francis, a guide for pleasure islanders, was in the same vein as Disneyland's Will Create Happiness, and Freedomlands be a friendly Freedomlander. His approach, focusing on treating park customers as a guest, was a major departure from typical amusement park operations and helped define the modern theme park experience. Unlike the Colorado Park, Pleasure Island would be completed and survive, more or less, for 11 seasons. Corporate sponsors, like CV had arranged for Disneyland, made a big difference in funding initial construction. Sponsors paid for a five-year lease, along with interior construction costs, taxes, and fire insurance. Keeping the doors open, though, wasn't easy, and the park went through multiple changes of ownership along the way. Initial construction costs ran higher than planned, and the park reportedly took in only $700,000 during the 1959 season. That's gross, not profit. That first year was also the rainiest in the area since 1927, hindering construction as well as dampening outdoor activities. And with the short New England operating calendar, they barely saw half of the expected 750,000 visitors. By the time the last owner gave up in 1969, 
total attendance had clocked in at a mere three million. All of this combined with a lack of sustained capital investment led to the park's decline, with little in the way of new attractions and lots in the way of deferred maintenance. Once the downhill spiral begins, it's increasingly difficult to dig out. While much of the original park is long gone, the site itself isn't entirely transformed into modern development. Memories live on through the efforts of the Friends of Pleasure Island, an enthusiastic bunch who meets to reminisce, take tours of the grounds, and compile memorabilia. A little old tip from the anchor man. Take a trip to Freedom Land. Take a trip to Freedom Land. Take a date to Freedom Land. The moon both free and swinging wild. Performing night and day. Great shows night and day. On May 25th, 1959, in the Empire State Building, C.V. Wood and partners held a press conference to announce the largest Disneyland-type park to be built east of Anaheim. Freedomland was to be 85 acres of American history, billed as the world's largest entertainment center. This from the opening season guidebook. You see, hear, feel, and live the true history of our land as it actually happened. In old New York, at the Chicago Fire, in the Indian Fighting West, in the Civil War, you were there, playing a real part in the great moments that shaped our country's destiny. You helped fight the Chicago Fire. You are attacked by hostile Indians. You participate in the dramatic action stories that highlight our American heritage. Freedomland is your adventure in living history. Well, who could pass that up? Indeed, in a region full of amusements of all types, including the original Coney Island, Freedomland was an entirely new thing, and enough people had watched Walt show off his park for so long they were hungry to try a taste of it for themselves. Getting the park ready for them, however, was a complicated affair. Freedomland was Woody's idea, and Marco Engineering handled the design aspects. The land was owned by Webb and Knapp, Incorporated which was a major shareholder in National Development Corporation. International Recreation Corporation, including investors in Pleasure Island, was the parent company to Freedomland Incorporated. You follow all that? They leased the land from National Development for a reported $760,400 per year. Stock purchases as part of the deal cost $7 million. Construction overruns added another $4 million beyond the estimated $16 million for the park. The actual inner workings of who was in control of what are far more complex and resulted in a structure where no single individual or entity was actually in total charge of everything. It would have to perform exceedingly well to recoup this and sustain operations over the years. The site was on 205 acres in the Bronx, mostly marshland and a former landfill. In a unique design twist, the park was laid out in the shape of the United States. Visitors entered along the mid-Atlantic seaboard and found themselves in little old New York. The time period is 1850 to 1900. You might witness a holdup at the bank, cruise the lake in the harbor tugboats, drive a horseless carriage through New England, another standard aero auto ride, or take the horse-drawn streetcar or surreys over to Chicago. Set in 1871, Chicago featured the Santa Fe Railroad, bound for San Francisco on the other side of the park. The two majestic sternwheelers, the American and Canadian, and the Stockyards Restaurant. 
Youngsters were encouraged to chip in and help fight the Great Chicago Fire, where a catastrophe breaks out every 15 minutes as posted on the attraction sign. Burned timbers outside the attraction building were remnants of an actual fire during park construction. Venturing westward, we found ourselves in the Great Plains. This is 1803 to 1900. Fort Cavalry provided a safe haven from the various hostels to be found beyond its gates. But the brave could hop on the Fort Cavalry stage line and ride the stagecoaches over Lewis and Clark's route. Post a letter at the Pony Express station and watch the rider tear off at full speed for delivery at Old Southwest. Borden's farm was here on the Great Plains, complete with a real-life Elsie the Cow and other various farm animals. Elsie, who was always well-coiffed and ready for a night on the town, lived in supreme comfort with a lavish stall designed by a New York interior design firm. San Francisco covered the west coast of the U.S. map. Step off the train in 1906 and take in the shops of Chinatown, entertainment of the Barbary Coast, and hear grizzled fishermen tell tall fish tales at Fisherman's Wharf. Two major attractions were located in this section of the park, the first described as follows. On April 18, 1906, the ground fell from under San Francisco's feet. You will safely see the San Francisco earthquake and fire recreated in harrowing detail. You will ride past buckling sidewalks, open fissures, and collapsing buildings. You will see houses slide sideways and crack in two, then burst into flames. These thrills are yours in Freedomland's San Francisco Earthquake Ride. This was a classic dark ride designed by Marco and engineered by Aero Development, consisting of antique autos that wound through the town streets, first enjoying the peaceful atmosphere of townspeople enjoying everyday life, then frantically careening through complete disaster as the world crumbled around you. Northwest Fur Trapper was yet another adaptation of the Jungle Cruise, set in 1820s Oregon. Boarding a fur trapper's bull boat, you set sail up the Snake and Columbia Rivers, your armed guide desperately trying to ward off danger from wild animals and totem pole Indians. Since Marco was simultaneously working on design concepts for all three parks, there was much overlap in common experiences. In this case, narrowly avoiding a falling tree and collapsing bridge, as was originally intended for Magic Mountain. Walk through the tunnel toward the Old Southwest and notice the Tucson Mining Company ore buckets gliding overhead. This was a standard Von Roll sky ride, though it had two complete circuits side by side for double the capacity. Additional attractions that you could also find in the other Marco parks were the Burrow Trail, a slow saunter on a small donkey, live entertainment at the Opera House and Saloon, gunfights in the streets, and the Tilt House where nothing was straight and objects appeared to roll uphill. Board an Aero Mine Train car and descend deep into the mine caverns, encountering all sorts of creatures, exploding TNT, and narrowly avoiding a head-on crash with another out-of-control mine car. New Orleans was next, featuring the gaiety of Mardi Gras. Take a spin on the King Rex carousel, lose yourself in the crystal maze glass-walled house of mirrors, and watch your kids hop on the back of Danny the Dragon, an aero-developed multi-vehicle train designed to resemble a long, twisting dragon. Danny at least most of the time, followed a wire buried in the pavement, an adaptation of guided vehicle technology from factories. A similar approach would be employed much later at Epcot for Universe of Energy and the great movie ride at Disney's Hollywood Studios. 
The last veterans from the Civil War were just about gone, and the park paid homage to that terrible period with an intensely realistic recreation of the Great War between the states. A war correspondence wagon took you through encampments, burning houses, and a derailed train, suddenly finding yourself trapped by cannon crossfire. Escaping over a pontoon bridge, the wagon drove past Appomattox Courthouse, where Lee surrendered his Army of Northern Virginia to Grant. Transfer over to a Model T in Tornado, where large fans blew every which way, cows and chickens went flying through the air, residents held on for dear life, and you got swept up in the rotating eye of the monster storm. Of course, pirates are a major aspect of history in this region of the country, so the tall mast planted in the concrete with flags, crow's nest, and a dead pirate hanging from the yardarm was an inevitable draw to ride Buccaneer. Arrow was certainly busy for Freedom Land, and for this attraction they provided 11 cars designed like pirate ships, winding their way along a track past scenes of merriment, hidden treasure, a sea serpent, and blundering right into the midst of a battle between two pirate ships firing cannon in all directions. And you thought Disney was first. The last land of the park focused on the future. Satellite City offered a glimpse toward where the country was headed, with science and industry exhibits, the futuristic sports cars of the Satellite City Turnpike, and the moving sidewalk that took you over the lake to Space Rover. Similar to what had been planned for Magic Mountain, this attraction simulated space travel with a bone-shaking launch and high-altitude views of America's great cities. The park's second season featured the Moon Bowl, an expansive outdoor dance floor built over the former lake. This was a highly successful addition with concerts by major stars of the day. Freedom Land opened June 19, 1960. Five seasons later, it was all over. There has been great speculation and mystery surrounding its demise, with most accounts echoing the long-held belief that the 1964 World's Fair in New York did it in. But as in most cases, the story is far more complex than this. First was the overly complicated ownership and management structure. Disneyland survived because one man was in total charge of everything and was passionate about making the whole thing work. Factor in an expensive annual land lease and the math quickly becomes unsustainable, especially with attendance falling far short of Wood's predicted $5 million per season. The land itself was terrible consisting of marsh and landfill. Stories abound of mattress springs sticking up through the asphalt, tripping staff and visitors alike. Short operating seasons, about four months, did not offset the significant amount of year-round financial commitments. After pouring the foundation for the announced Freedom Land Inn, all construction on the hotel was abandoned and the land put up for auction as early as 1963. Lack of capital resulted in the decline of show over time such as selling Tornado to Kennywood Park and replacing the horse-drawn Civil War correspondence wagons with regular farm tractors. For the 1964 season, San Francisco was closed off completely, with a sticker in the park's guidebook claiming, We're fixing it for you, closed in order to build a bigger and better freedom land. The park struggled to find new attractions that were necessary to maintain attendance but these often ran contrary to the original historic intent and story. Management claimed at the end of the 1964 season that the park would reopen the following year with only Little Old New York, Old Chicago, and Satellite City. It never did. The cash drain for building and operating the park, 
along with the highly complex financial dealings for the involved companies, caused serious fiscal issues before the park even opened for its inaugural season in 1960. The park filed bankruptcy in September 1964, presenting a plan to maintain a small portion of the park while building a housing development on property. This was not accepted, and so developers moved in with a blessing of state and local government and began building Co-op City, a series of high-rise apartments. It has been claimed this was the actual intent from the very beginning, but that the land needed to be proven acceptable for such development. The idea was building the park with its multi-story structures and running it for five years supposedly satisfied the condition for allowing construction of much larger buildings. More likely, it was simple economics. The land just became more valuable for anything except a park in decline, especially in New York City. At any rate, the park was done and with it, the last of C.V. Wood's dream of building his own Disneyland around the country. Of the four major parks he was directly involved in realizing, only one has survived. Marco Engineering was hired for a variety of other park and entertainment projects, most never realized. The company provided a range of services, from feasibility studies to design and engineering. All of them were billed with headlines such as, The designers and builders of Disneyland California may very well lend the magic of their fairy wand to New York's aquarium next year. And you wonder why Disney set his legal beagles loose on them. There was a proposed circus land in Orlando, Discovery Land in Miami, Magic Harbor in Houston, Jungle Land in Thousand Oaks, California, a Disneyland-type gold rush center in Rockland, California, San Antonio's Riverwalk, a Boston Exposition Center revamp, and a major makeover for Cedar Point. The man who built Disneyland confidently informed the city of San Antonio in 1958 that a park in that region was feasible and would attract over a million visitors each year. And on it went, but the main ones that will forever be associated with his infamous name started in the mountains of Colorado and wound up as concrete foundations for housing outside the Big Apple. Woody went on to develop Lake Havasu, a planned community in Arizona, featuring the actual London Bridge he bought and shipped from England, stone by stone, every single one, or so it was claimed. For all his supposed faults, lack of self-assurance was not one of them. America's Disneyland is produced by Rivershore Creative. Find out more about regional park history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books at rivershorepress.com. For the complete history of America's regional theme parks, grab a copy of Imagineering and American Dreamscape, available everywhere. Thanks for listening.